Servants, respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye to obeying the real master, Christ. Don't just do what you have to to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master, regardless of whether you are slave or free. Masters, it's the same with you. No abuse, please, and no threats. You and your servants are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. Hey guys, so good to see you this weekend. I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've never met you, I'd love the chance to meet you. If this is your first time checking things out, welcome. And uh, if you don't have a church home, love to invite you to come hang out with us. Uh, we have services here at 8 o'clock, 9 30, 11 o'clock, 5 30 on Sundays. Love the chance to meet you. Thanks for hanging out with us. We're in this series, Book of Ephesians, and so you might want to grab a Bible and turn there, get your phone, go there, get something to take some notes with. We're getting ready to land this, right? So we have two more weeks in the Book of Ephesians, and we kind of took a little three-week deal in the middle of our series. Hey, let's just talk about some of these things that Paul talks about, and uh, today he's going to talk to us about our work, our job, our vocation. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated with people's jobs. Like, I love when I sit down and meet with somebody, like, tell me about your job. Tell me what you do. And uh, this show in particular caught my attention uh, when it came out, Dirty Jobs. Uh, what it means by that is, like, some of the grimiest, dirty jobs. And if you watch that, and I don't know if I've only watched one episode uh, of it, but uh, he does all these real-life documentaries on sewer inspectors, Worm dung farmers, like, like I don't even know it's a job, right? Uh, sledge cleaners, uh, garbage pit technicians, all these dirty jobs are interesting. It may, it kind of fascinates me. I got online and looked up what some of the weirdest jobs that pay well. Uh, you can look this up. Uh, you could go to a zoo and be a snake milker and make five thousand dollars a month. Who knew? Right? <laughs> Who knew? Uh, for forty thousand dollars a year, you could be a dog food taster. <laughs> dog food like somebody's got to do it right uh, spot you don't want to eat that food before somebody tastes it uh you can be a professional cuddler that's kind of weird and creepy to me right for 40 dollars an hour there's professional sleepers professional mourners uh, it kind of got me on a, on a rabbit trail. I mean, wonder what some of the most dangerous jobs there are and so there's a database of the deadliest occupations USA today came out with tree trimmers were right at the top. Right? So those of you who are doing that, like, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the risk and trimming our trees. Commercial pilots. I don't know how I feel about that flying. Right? Uh, ag workers. They work with large cattle. Uh, very dangerous job. Loggers and roofers. I don't know about you, but for me, the most dangerous job is window cleaning. That's dangerous. I watched this show. Uh, and it showed that at the Grand Canyon, there's this sky bridge. So that you can like literally walk out with a glass bottom. And they have to hire people to come and clean those windows. Uh, these workers are hanging literally 4,000 feet above the ground over the Grand Canyon. Like, I don't know about you, but there's no way I want any part of that. Uh, what's your vocation? Paid or unpaid, what do you do? What's your job? Um, here's the deal. Our jobs are a big part of our life. Many of us, it's what 
uh, identifies us. If we're honest, it identifies us. It's like, you know, that's how we describe ourselves. For some of us, it's where we spend most of our day at our occupation, our job. For a lot of us, it's the narrative of our story. We ask people very early this question, what are you going to do when you grow up? I remember being asked that. Uh, probably the earliest thing I remember is I'm going to be a football player, right? That didn't work out. Uh, we lived right beside a big old sail barn, and I was fascinated by that. We'd go up there, my dad would take me up there. And so at one point in time, I'm like, I'm going to be a farmer, right? Uh, and uh, I can tell you this much, I, I just was at a, a, a friend of mine, his farm, and uh, those guys work hard, right? They, they work hard, and thank you to all the farmers who might be watching this for the way you feed us and take care of us. But uh, it's, it's our work. It becomes part of the early dreams of our life, and then it becomes a huge narrative of our life. My dad taught me to work hard young. I just grew up with a dad, like he's like, I want you to work hard. So we had chores, and I remember pretty quickly I was mowing neighbor's grass, and uh, I remember my first job. My first job was unloading uh, trucks at a local warehouse. I spent 10 hours a day just unloading trucks. That's all we did. I've done many different jobs, and they kind of make me who I am, right? Uh, they kind of become part of the fabric of the narrative of my story in a lot of ways. My vocation a big part of that, right? I've been everything from a custodian. I worked custodial to a coach. I coached football for a while. I was a teacher at college. Uh, I used to work in a factory. I under, that's where I first learned the whole term piecework, right? And you get paid by the piece. Uh, I've unloaded trucks. I've been a church planter. I've been a pastor. Our job uh, kind of has a way of helping define us. The fact of the matter is that a lot of people are just not happy at their work. I found this interesting that there are a lot of companies that are hiring CHOs. Uh, you've heard of a CEO and a CFO, CHOs, Chief Happiness Officers. That's because a lot of people aren't happy at their work. So this person's entire job is to make sure, ensure happiness at work. It's interesting because apparently somewhere along the way, uh, our childlike idealism is met with an adulthood realism and our dream to thrive in our vocation sometimes erodes and just becomes this desire to survive in a job. This may be symptomatic of a problem. Maybe the problem is this. Maybe the problem is twofold. Maybe the problem for some of us is we trivialize our work. Uh, what I mean by that is work for us is something we trivialize because we just work to live. Uh, work is just a means to an end. It's a necessary evil to pay the bills and to provide food on the table. And so maybe that's the way some of you see your job. I don't, I don't know. Uh, there's others of us that we don't trivialize, that we idolize it. And what I mean by that is we don't work to live, we live to work. And it becomes this endless chase for importance and maybe significance and identity uh, some of us, we become addicted to our work at the expense of our family and friends and even some of us, our faith. And so it all leads to this, like, what is the gospel? What does God, what does the Bible say about my faith and my work? And so that's what I want to address for a few minutes. And before we get to Ephesians 6 is where I want you to have your Bibles. I need to zoom out. Can we do that for a minute? Zoom out to get a bigger perspective because to understand work, we need to understand the bigger story of God. And to understand the bigger story of God is to understand work. And I believe this, if we don't understand the bigger story of God, we'll misuse work, we'll misunderstand work, we'll misinterpret work. We'll have a frustrated relationship with our work, our vocation. 
In his book, Every Good Endeavor, I have it here with me. I recommend it. Very much was a part of what I'm sharing with you today. Tim Keller says this. He quotes from a philosopher, uh, Alasdair McIntyre, his book, After Virtue. He said, imagine you're standing at a bus stop and a young man you don't know comes up to you and says, the name of the common duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Even though you understand the sentence, the action makes no sense. Like, that makes no sense whatsoever. What does he mean? What does it mean? What does the sentence mean? The only way to make sense of a man coming up to you at a bus stop and doing that is to try to learn the story into which it fits. He's on to say this, perhaps the young man is mentally ill. That would explain it. Or maybe the day before he met somebody who looked just like you in the library and asked him what the Latin name of the common duck was and he mistook you for that person today. So he was giving you the answer. Or perhaps, I like this one, he's a foreign spy who had prearranged a rendezvous. And this was the code they chose to identify his contact. He goes on to say this, that the first story or scenario would be sad, the second comical, and the third dramatic, no doubt. But the point is, without a handle on the story, there's no way to understand the meaning of what happened and no way to know how to answer the man. He goes on to say, if you call the police when it was a simple case of mistaken identity, then that would be very embarrassing. If you pick a fight with someone who's a trained assassin, the result would be even worse. But in any case, if you get the story wrong, your response will be wrong. And if you get the story of the world wrong, he says, you'll get your life response wrong, including the way you go about your work. So that's why we've got to zoom out, because God's telling a story. Um, some have put it this way, maybe a simple way, that God's story has these kind of um, phases to it, these scenes to it, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And to understand work, I think we need to put it in the story of God. Uh, let's start with creation. I need to tell you this, the story of God starts with the story of a God doing work. God is creating. He's doing the work of creating. He creates the light, the sky, the land. He creates the water, the plants, the animals, the sun, the moon, the stars. God is created. Then on the sixth day, it says this, God said, let us make mankind. Pinnacle of his creation. But here's what's key, in our image, in our likeness. We've preached on this before so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The pinnacle of God's work is that he made man, here we go, here's the key, in his image. We're made in the image of a God who is working. It says this, God saw all he had made, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Look at this. By the seventh day, God had finished the what? God's working. He finished from the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his what? His work. God did work. And he saw all that he made and declared it good. And he made man in his image and it was very good. Then God rested from his what? His work. And look what he does with the man. The Lord God then took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it, to take care of it. He placed the man that he had created in his image in the middle of the creation to do what? What's he creating to do? To do work. See, to understand work, I gotta understand that I'm creating the image of a God who works. This is pretty key, this is important to get because I think we have a misunderstanding of work sometimes. 
Work is not the result of the curse. Man was working before the curse. We're going to see that. Man was working. God created, God was a God who's working, created man in his own image, created man to work. And I believe this, man's going to be working in the new kingdom. I think we're going to be working in the new heavens and new earth. We're going to be working. You see, work is not a result of the curse. We are hardwired to work. We've been created to work. It's why I think, you ever meet like a, a man like that, that, that retires and eventually they just kind of start to erode physically, emotionally. Some of them uh, even die quickly. Uh, sometimes I think it's that we stop doing what we've been hardwired to do. It's hardwired in our creative DNA. We were made for work in the image of a God who is working. Most of us know that the story has a devastating next chapter. It doesn't take long to get there. Chapter 3, most of us know, has this violent interruption in the story of God. God places man in the garden, gives him one tree that he commands him not to eat from. Man violates this command and suddenly intimacy with God is broken. Not just with him, but with his wife. Now everything is distorted and impacted by sin, including our work. All of a sudden, work becomes frustrating. Work becomes hard. At times, work appears pointless. Sin becomes the prevailing lens through which everything gets distorted. After sin, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food, and you'll return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. What's the point here? I think in this scene, in the fall, sin distorts everything. It becomes the prevailing lens, including my work. All of a sudden, because of sin, man begins to view work apart from his relationship with God. And his experience and his ambition for work gets distorted. Work all of a sudden becomes a way to achieve power. It becomes a way to find my identity, to become significant. Or maybe work just becomes a way to resource the different idols in my life that I want to replace God. See, here's the deal. Man has, over time, tried to reconnect what was lost in the garden. Try to find all kinds of ways to do it. What we've been trying to do is recapture purpose and identity and an ultimate joy that was experienced in the garden. Since the very beginning, this has been going on. And what sin causes in our life is us to disconnect in our relationship with the only one who can give us the ultimate joy, purpose, and identity the one who created us. Sin will destroy destroy all of our pursuits, including our vocation and our work. The story of God, listen close, the story of God is about a God who makes it possible for us to reconnect, reconcile in relationship with him, reconnect to our purpose, find identity, achieve significance, experience ultimate joy. And it will not be derived from my work. And it will not be the result of my work. Look what it says, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, we've used those words through the series, he's a new creation. 
The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself. I love that, right? And gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself. Why? Because broken from the garden on in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. How do you do that? He said, well, the, we are God's Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How do we do that? Here's the secret, the gospel. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. When he died, he died for my sin and yours so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're taking notes, I would write this word down, redemption. That's the story of redemption, that God sent Jesus to die, to restore our relationship with him. And that when we say yes to Jesus, as the only one that can save us, forgive us of our sins, we are, as he put it, new creations. We become new creations. At the cross, Jesus is doing the work that is needed that we could not do on our own. I would write it this way. At the cross, Jesus did all the work necessary to reconcile my relationship with God. Have you ever said yes to Jesus? Have you ever experienced the reconciliation with God that only Christ and his finished work on the cross can provide? That's the gospel. It's exactly what this whole book of Ephesians has been about up till now. In Christ, we can be reconciled to God. In Christ, we can be reconnected to our purpose. In Christ, we find true identity. In Christ is where we experience ultimate joy. That's what he's saying. The key is that the only way you and I can be in Christ and to be reconciled is to trust the work he did. It's not about what we do to get in God's good favor, but it's about the work he did on the cross on our behalf. You remember in Ephesians, Paul's the one who said this. Now we're zooming way out and coming back in. Ephesians, you with me? For it is by, come on, say it with me, by what? Grace, that you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift. Have you ever received that gift? Have you ever said yes to Jesus? He loves you. He died for you. It's not by works. I can't achieve this. I can't work hard enough to get okay with God, reconnect, so that no one can boast. For we then, once we say yes to Jesus, are God's handiwork. I love that. His masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now we're going to start to understand work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's saying, I can't do enough to reconcile myself to God. It's a gift that's achieved by the work Jesus did in my place, on my behalf. But the moment, see this? The moment I accept the gift of his finished work at the cross, I become what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, a new creation. What he says in Ephesians, I become God's handiwork. Or that Greek word is poema, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus, now in Christ Jesus, to do what? Good works. This is the idea of restoration, that in Christ there's restoration, reconciliation. The gospel changes everything. That's what Paul's been teaching us. The gospel changes the way you approach your marriage, the way that you approach your family, and the way you approach your work. Because as a new creation, I approach my work differently. 
I approach my work differently. That's what Paul is saying in this part of Ephesians, which takes us to the part that Joe read for us earlier, slaves, and right away we're like, what? Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, and begin to ask yourself, okay, what's that about? <laughs> I, 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 I can't just run past that. Like When he's saying that, is he like going back Civil War days? Is he going back to slavery in America? I feel like I need to give some context to this, and then, then we need to keep reading and make some application. Paul is addressing household codes. He addresses them not just in Ephesians, other places. In a house, there would have been a spouse, children, and domestic servants. Many churches gathered in homes, and so he's writing to the church, and he's addressing these household codes, and so he's addressed spouses. He's addressed children. Now he's addressing domestic servants. Paul's not talking about how we address these institutions. He's not saying right, wrong. I would say this kind of slavery that he's talking about here is is completely different than what we experienced in American history. Uh, slavery in the first century that he's talking about was not based on race, was not the result of kidnapping necessarily, wasn't permanent, and slaves actually had rights. But what's key to note is this, Paul's not talking here about how to address these particular institutions. He's not saying, he's not promoting this, condoning it. Somebody say, well, the Bible promotes slavery. No, that's not what he's doing. He's saying, here's how you live in these institutions. One commentator said it better than I think I can. He said, New Testament teaching does not focus on reforming and restructuring human systems. Listen close. This is a different sermon, which are never the root cause of human problems. The issue is always the heart, which when wicked will corrupt the best of systems, and when righteous will improve the worst. If men's hearts were not changed, they'll find ways to oppress others regardless of whether or not there is actual slavery. You see, Paul's not trying to address these instances. He says, here's how you live in it. Very different. And he says, slaves, I want you to obey. Serve your earthly masters with respect and fear, sincerity of heart. I want you to serve them with honor, I want you to serve them in humility. I want you to serve them with honesty, just as you would obey Christ. It's going to be key. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. He goes on, he says, because you know the Lord will reward each. That's interesting. That word is actually where we get our word commission. Some of you work on commission, right? That's interesting. Each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. Saying, slaves, serve your masters, knowing that it is ultimately Jesus you're serving. Masters, lead your slaves, your servants, your domestic servants, knowing that you have a master, and it's Jesus, and he's the same master as their master. Basically, he's addressing work. He's saying employees work knowing Jesus is your ultimate boss. And bosses, those of you bosses listening to me, lead knowing that you have a boss and his name is Jesus. What he's saying is this, is that if we want to understand work as new creations, if we want to understand how the gospel and faith impact our work, he's saying my work is worship to God. 
He says, in your vocation, you're working for the Lord. I love the way the message, this is what Joe read it out, servants respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye to obeying the real master Christ. Don't just do it so that you can get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face. Oh man, there you go. Always keeping in mind that no matter what, who happens to be giving the orders, you're really what? Serving who? God. Good work will get you good pay from the master regardless of whether you're slave or free. Masters, it's the same with you. No abuse, please. No threats. By the way, it doesn't work. You and your servants are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. He's saying your work your worship. Worship is how you work. He says, don't just do it so your boss can see you, but recognize you're a new creation. And as new creation, we have a new audience. We have a new boss. We have a new purpose. We have a new identity. Your boss is always watching you. He's the one who redeemed you. He's the one that did all the work for you to be reconciled to God, to be reconnected to your purpose, to be re-rooted in your identity, to, to be able to experience ultimate joy. And he says, your work is worship. What does that mean? What does it mean that my work is worship to God? And maybe several things worth writing down. If my work is worship, it means I, when I go to work tomorrow, like if you're watching this or maybe you're at work now and you're supposed to be working, I don't know, right? It means I'm always going to give my best. I'm, I'm always, always going to give my best. You know why? My audience, the audience that matters the most has changed my life. I don't simply want to do my best when my boss is watching. I used to work at a <coughs> book factory and I can remember I worked with some other college guys and uh, th there was uh, one guy who... Uh, he would go way back in the dark places of the warehouse and um, he would take a nap on some of the boxes. And he had a system where some of his buddies would yell when the boss came. When the boss was coming through, he would run to his station and work like a dog. And the boss was like, man, good job, right? <laughs> like, but what he's saying here is for the fall of Christ, I don't simply want to do my best when my boss is watching to make an impression, but I'm doing my best as a response to Christ who gave his best for me. He did the ultimate for me. And so my life is a response to that. He says, that's why I want you to serve with respect. Did you see those words in there? Respect, honor, to recognize those in authority over you. I think we have a struggle with that in our culture. I really do. I think, I, I think we have a struggle with it. He says, I want you to serve with respect, with courtesy, with a confident humility with honesty, serve with the sincerity of your heart. Your boss ought to be able to trust you. Your boss ought to be able to trust you when he's present and when he's not, that you're going to do your best. We're, we're free to work as worship. Our work is a way to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he, he says this, he's like, did you see that in there? He says, masters, the same is with you. This would have been shocking to them. He's like, the same thing applies to you. He like crashes all the walls and distinctions. 
He says, I want you to treat your domestic servants, your slaves, the same way with respect. I want you to remember that with God, there's no favoritism. He doesn't look at you different. That they're made in the image of God. That Jesus died for them. He says, remember that you've been given a role from God, your boss, your ultimate leader. And that role you've been given as a boss, remember we've been talking about it, is a gift from God for the benefit of those working under you. So how does a boss do that? Keep your promises. Keep your promises to your employees. Pay them fair wages. Give them fair benefits. Have a heart. Have a heart. Encourage them often. Affirm them where you can. Don't threaten them, he says. Don't play favorites. He says, in the same way. I think I'm going to do my best if my work is my worship to God. I think there's some other things. It means this. There's different roles, right? Not different classes in work. I think we live in a society that wants to classify. There's pecking orders of people. You can see this play out all kinds of places. Maybe it's your workplace, right? Um, the person who pushes the broom maybe isn't on the same level as the person in the office pushing the pencil, Okay? And I got different pay structures. I don't know why I'm addressing that. Uh, what I'm saying is this. God says that if you're a Christ follower, then whether you're cleaning toilets or you're running the company, you have the same master and your work is your worship. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, bosses, I want you to leverage your authority for the benefit of your employees. Why? Because you serve a God that leveraged his position for our sake. And so the gospel gets to show up in our workplace, and I respond. Whatever role I play, I respond as an act of worship. I think there's another thing it means, and I think this is very near and dear to my heart, and it means this, that there is no, no distinction between secular and sacred work. This is a big deal. It's really heavy on my heart. This is how I tie Sunday to Monday. When we go to church, we say, I'm going to worship. But I double-dog dare you tomorrow morning or today, later, whatever, whenever you're watching this. When you head to work, I double-dog dare you, if you're a follower of Christ, to say something. Tell your husband, tell your wife on your way out the door, hey, I'm heading to worship. Now, Luther is the one who in church history was pivotal in breaking down this barrier. He simply said this, that the milkmaid and the minister have received their calling from God. Uh, I love how one early church um, person said this. William Deal, he was a Lutheran leader. He said, if lay people cannot find any spiritual meaning in their work, they're condemned to living a certain dual life, not connecting what they do on Sunday with what they do for the rest of the week. They need to discover that the very actions of daily life are spiritual and enable people to touch God in the world, not away from it. Such spirituality will say your work is your prayer. I love that. How about this, Dorothy Sayers in her essay, Why Work? Fascinating essay, by the way. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She's allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. 
and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious, or at least uninterested in religion. I think she's right. I think the, the point here is this. I have people that will say to me, they say, you work for God. They'll say that to me, I'm a pastor. And so then they go to work, and, and, and they would compartmentalize and say, you work for God, I work for GE. I work for fill in the blank. And so then the primary way they see their work for God is I make money so that I can contribute to the work of God. And I think what this is saying is if my work is my worship, that when you go to GE, you're going to worship. And, and, and if, if somehow we can see that, that that's your calling from God. Because I think there's another thing here. It's not just my worship to God, but my work becomes a way for me to love my neighbor. You remember Jesus said the two greatest commands, love God, right? Worship, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbors yourself. In Keller's book that I referenced earlier, he points out that we live in a culture that sees our jobs through individualistic eyes. Many of us do that. And we've lost our sense of calling that's connected to the community that we share life with. And our work is vocation. The Latin word vocation means calling. It means calling. My job is not simply a way for me to fulfill my selfish desires. It's a way for me to contribute to the needs of others. In his book, he refers to the Lutheran tradition that talks about our work being the very fingers of God. He goes on to state this, and this is true. There are doctors who become doctors because in large part, they want to live a doctor's lifestyle. There are lawyers who become lawyers in large part because they want to live a lawyer's lifestyle. But what he goes on to say, there are plenty of doctors who become doctors because curing patients is the way for them as a follower of Jesus to care for patients and to love their neighbor. Now, there are plenty of lawyers who become lawyers who, as a follower of Jesus, are seeking justice to help the oppressed and love their neighbor as they follow Jesus. You see, whether that's a teacher, whether that's a manufacturing job, whether that's a farmer. I, I just spent time with, at a friend's farm. And if you've never done this, you ought to do this. It just reminds you of the, the calling. Um, my friend's name is Jeff. And uh, he and his family run this farm in Sterling. And it was fascinating. Almost a thousand head of cattle. And uh, by the way, farmers, thank you. It just reminded me of how they love us through their vocation. I feel loved by them. I mean, the food, the, the, the milk the, 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 that we eat and drink. You see, the gospel frees us to love God and worship God through our work, and it becomes a way for me to love my neighbor. So the contribution of my work becomes for me to love my neighbor and contribute to society. I teach not just to make a living, but to lovingly invest in students. I drive a truck that delivers products to people that help provide needs for them. I clean toilets and floors, not simply to bring home a paycheck. It does do that, but to create a sanitized environment for people to exit and live. I just spent some time with two of our custodial staff here at Grace Norton. And, and, and I said to them, thank you. Like Their work is so important to what happens here. Without somebody cleaning the building, without somebody doing that, right? The result is filth and dirt and death. 
You see, there's a sense to which our work is a way for us to love our neighbor. Our work, one author said, can become a calling instead of a curse if it's reimagined. If it's reimagined through the gospel and it becomes a mission to serve beyond our own self-interest and to serve the needs and benefit others. Which means this, not only is my work worship, not only is it a way for me to love my neighbor, but it provides a witness to the world. Can, can I suggest this, the way you conduct yourself at work says more about your relationship to God than the way you conduct yourself in church. <laughs> you spend way more time at work than you do in a church building or watching church podcasts, whatever it might be. I know that some of you are thinking, Dan, you don't know my boss, and I know I can't address every situation. We're going to do a podcast this week. We've done them for marriage. We've done them for family. We're going to do one this week. Uh, Pastor Adam's going to lead a discussion. You're like, I don't know my boss. You don't know where I work. My boss is an absolute fool. He's a jerk. He's a toad. There's no way in the world that I can go into work tomorrow whistling as I work, saying I'm going to worship. I, I hear you. Trust me. I, I, I've worked for some... Less than ideal bosses. But I'm reminded of what First Peter says. Live such good lives among the pagans. That includes to toads, difficult bosses. That though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it's commendable for God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example as you should follow in his steps. That's a hard passage. Let's just say it. But what he's saying here is live such good lives, work in a way that your life speaks volumes. The way you work speaks volumes. How in the world can you do that? The only power I know to do that is to remember that you've been redeemed by a God who served you when you were a fool, who saved you when you were a sinner, who came for you when you were his enemy. Now it's the power of that gospel that fuels our response. Now a new creation, when I say yes to Jesus in Christ, my work becomes a place where I spend a bulk of my time and it's an opportunity for me to bear witness of the one who changed everything in me. Peter takes it to its logical conclusion later in his letter when he eventually says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Worship, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. He's like this. The way you work in less than ideal situations becomes opportunity to live in such a way, to work in such a way that begs a question. And when that comes, give them the reason. Because when you worship with your work and love your neighbor, it's a bit confusing to others. So be ready. Some of you work in rough workspaces. Maybe even need to get out of the workspace you're in. I don't know. But I want to end simply with this thought. The most precious thing to God 
For those of you who are followers of Christ, who are his new creations, is your faith. Peter says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come to the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. For some of you, your work may be the furnace in which God is refining that which is more precious than gold, your faith. You see, when the gospel becomes the lens through which I look at my work, it has some pretty interesting implications. It'll keep my work from destroying me. My identity isn't wrapped up in my work. It's wrapped up in who I am in Christ. You know how you know your identity's wrapped up in your work? When you're successful, it goes to your head. And when you're a failure, it crushes your heart. You see, your work doesn't need to destroy you. When the gospel becomes the narrative through which you begin to interpret your work, your work no longer simply bore you. You see yourself working for God, eyes wide open, painting a picture for the world of the coming kingdom of God. And when the gospel becomes the narrative through which we make sense of our work, our work won't corrupt us because our desire is to honor God in the way we work, with how we work, why we work, because he ultimately is the one that we serve. You see, here's the deal. Whether your job you get paid for or not, your work is worship. And it's a way for you to love your neighbor. And it's a way for you to declare and witness to the world of the Savior and Lord that you follow and love. God, help us tomorrow. Help us tomorrow, or even today, to run into our workspace with an attitude of worship bringing honor and glory to Jesus, loving others as the fingers of God in whatever it is we're doing in a way that declares witness to the one in whom we've put our hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.